On this week's episode, we welcome Dr. Donahue and Dr. Knight. On the Armstrong Williams Show, we're going to talk about what's going on with U.S. medicine. And we'll talk about much more with our media roundtable, Dr. Brian Donahue and Dr. Michael Knight. So let me, let me go through this list, you guys. I made this list. Um, FinFan. Transvaginal mesh, uh, Brextra, hardware blood uh, pumps, Philips CT scanners, Zofran, Tigerpol. All these were approved by the FDA and they were recalled. And now where are we now? Biogen, the Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's drug. How long before Biogen joins that list, Dr. Donahue, especially given that the Cleveland Clinic refuses to administer it to their patients. Well, good morning, Armstrong, and happy weekend to all your viewers across the Fruited Plain. You know, it's interesting that some of us have exactly the opposite point of view, the opposite point of view being that oftentimes the FDA is a little bit slow out of the box to approve agents or devices, in my case, that we think are of great value to our patients and that end up oftentimes being used for months or years overseas uh, prior to their approval here in the United States. So we can outline a hazard on both sides of the FDA. I think that the, that the Alzheimer drug story is an important story because it points out that uh, the FDA is maybe to some extent more flexible, a little bit more fleet-footed now than it has been in the past. We have talked here before about how both, how all of the vaccines, for example, are basically approved for an emergency authorization only. Um, I think that's a step in the right direction of, of, of uh, not bogging down potentially helpful uh, treatments and therapies and devices in an endless morass. In this case, though, the case that you point out, the initial indication was hedged back so that only people with mild Alzheimer's disease would be candidates for this under the current authorization. Is that really such a bad thing that we uh, basically make an iteration and are able to sculpt it and maybe amend it so as to more perfectly fit the needs of the times? I don't critique the FDA for that. I would have, on the other hand, had reason to critique them had they once again found their way to the answer, no. You know, Dr. Knight, any time when you approve a drug and it offers more questions than answers as the other ones that I just mentioned, it's a problem. It is not work. I mean, you look at the headlines, even in the New York Times, the Cleveland Clinic, there are medical facilities that are refusing to administer the drug. You know, Armstrong, I think one of the important things is we hear about uh, all of the medications that are approved. We don't hear about all of the medications that are denied. I mean, there are many, many, many medications that don't make it through the approval process. And remember, at the same time, you have patients who have rare diseases, who have serious diseases that we don't have options for, who are advocating and saying, I need something. I need some piece of hope. And when we start seeing agents, medications, treatments that are promising, that have gone through a trial process. No, of course, the trial process is not 
But if we can say, you know, 80%, 90%, it's not killing anyone, there's no serious benefit, then we have to do that risk-benefit analysis. I, I think we have to understand that nothing is perfect, but we do have things in place to say the probability that this is going to be helpful, particularly in a case when there's nothing else available. Think about the COVID-19 vaccine. One of the reasons we have emergency use and was done in a quick way, we had nothing else. If we had already had med vaccines available for years that were approved, I don't think we would have seen the swiftness. So I think it's also the context of is there any other treatments available and is this a serious condition? And if the answer to both one is no and the second is yes, then we're going to see a little bit more risk benefit analysis. I am absolutely flabbergasted. The thing you must understand about this show, it is unscripted, so neither physician had any idea what was going to be asked, and yet they're on the same page. Two that I have tremendous respect and trust in. And are you saying to us that of all those that we mentioned that had to be recalled, that it's still worth the risk that sometimes people die, sometimes it makes their condition worse because we have nothing else we should still track for? Is that what we're saying today, Dr. Donahue? Well, Dr. Knight makes a very important point. And the, the, the point is that oftentimes treatments arise or devices are developed that are novel devices and there's no precedent for them. So I'll give you an example in my own life. So in the case of drug-eluting stents, your viewers know, for example, now that heart doctors deploy these stents in the setting of blocked arteries. We were actually uh, involved in the development of some of these newer stents and the process for making them available to the public, this is back 10, 12 years ago now, was this endless Byzantine process of regulation and finessing and, and trials and so forth. And they were really available for years uh, to the Europeans uh, prior to uh, their advent of availability here in the States. And I would have argued then, did argue then, both privately and publicly, that this process was overly burdensome and it created a model, something like what you just suggested, which, which is if there's any opportunity for the agent to do harm, we should prevent the public from, from having access to it. I know you know well, Armstrong, that our goal is not to eliminate risk. Our goal is to manage risk. So yes, there are risks associated with new medicines and with new devices. But as Dr. Knight exactly points out, our real ambition is to create a, a risk-benefit understanding. And my sense here, for example, with this new Biogen medicine for Alzheimer's, though I have no expertise or standing in this as a neurologist, is that it's a very reasonable thing to make this medicine available within the guidelines that have been identified. And if institutions or individuals or physicians choose not to use it, God bless them. But in this heavy-handed way to say, you know what, no one's going to have access to that medicine. I think that's something we have to revisit. So, so, Dr. Knight, I mean, you and I have had several discussions about the opioids crisis in this country, which we don't talk about. Think about fentanyl. And look at what fentanyl did to the opioid crisis. Was it worth putting that drug on the market, considering what the consequences were in the long run? So the problem is the approval process is only the beginning. There has to be continuous surveillance. There has to be continuous understanding of what is bringing to the table. Fentanyl have been approved for decades. 
and we've used it effectively for anesthesia, for pain control in the hospital in appropriate ways. When we started seeing addictive potential, when we started seeing diversion, that's when the red flag needs to come up and say, now that we see what's happening, we need to readjust. The problem with the opioid crisis was that there was not that readjustment. When we understood that some of these long-acting opioids were, were leading to significant addiction and diversion, they should have been curbed. But that did not happen. So again, it's not just that, it's not just a one-and-done approval. The approval is only the first step. We have to continue to look at trials. We have to continue to look at outcomes. Providers have to let us know what's happening in real life with patients. And if we find out something that we didn't know before, we have to act very quickly. That's how we keep the trust of the population because we're not just saying one and done, you're out the window, good luck. We're saying we believe based on the information we have now that it is a benefit, but we're gonna keep watching. And if at any time that balance changes, we're gonna put some barriers in place to keep people safe. So Dr. Donahue, what about then the prescription drug cost, regulation and access? So Armstrong, um, just to go back for a second on the fentanyl thing, I've used fentanyl now for 30 years in the cath lab, exactly as Dr. Knight suggested, in very small doses to provide a gentle hypnotic effect for patients in a very anxious moment. And that, in the proper use of the medicine under those circumstances, is, uh, is it, it's nearly ideal for the needs of those patients at that time. So it's true that we can drown in the water that we propose to drink, and we can always find that, if, of course, if we use it indiscriminately or if, doctor, as Dr. Knight said, we're not watching and being thoughtful about the collective experience, we can come to the wrong conclusion. But to think that fentanyl across the board is a bad medicine that shouldn't be available to anyone because it's now being used as a narcotic uh, is, I think, uh, really denying physicians the kind of discretion that they need to rightly care for their patients. It's also my sense that that's true across the board and that, again, not to be provocative, but the FDA cannot be accused of being overly casual in its approval process. I would take just the opposite point of view. Physicians are able to advocate independently for their patients and patients are able to advocate independently on their own behalf. So widening the aperture and letting the range of options expand is a good thing in the supervised setting. You know, Dr. Donahue did not address my question. I appreciate what he said about fentanyl. He did not address my question about prescription costs, regulation, and access. Dr. Knight, there's so many Americans, when you think about addictions, it's not people out here selling drugs and involved in narcotics. It happens in the home for medicine. People are so addicted to their medicine. They're, they're, to me, they're the worst drug addicts. But it, it has been legal, it's been prescribed to them like doctors like you and Dr. Donahue. What about the regulation? What about the cost? What about the access? What about what it's doing? Kids go inside their parents' medicine cabinet and they take the medicine and they become addicted and they commit suicide. Where are we going with this? You're right. You make some really important points. And just as you said, we have to be vigilant. I tell you what, yes. let, let, let me do this. Let me do this, Dr. Knight, because I don't want to interrupt you. Let me take a break and we're going to come back and we'll continue 
discussion about the state of medicine in America. Yes, so what's important is that with the example that you provided about the opioid crisis, it was a failure on many levels. Unfortunately, you had providers who thought they were doing the right thing with a medication to control pain that were not fully educated in the addictive quality. And there are a lot of reasons behind that. Pharmaceutical industry had a big role to play. Regulation had a big role to play. And once we understood where we were, unfortunately, it was too late for many people. And that is why now we see the onus on the healthcare industry to correct those issues, to have treatment programs, to have new regulations, to take medications off the market that are dangerous. But again, we have to think about how money plays a piece in this. We have an industry where a lot of money is made with medication. And maybe that's not an incentive for the companies to let us know that actually there is a high addictive potential. There's a lot of issues there. And I think we're still working through it as a healthcare industry, but you're right to be outraged. I'm outraged when we realize how many people were affected in this setting. And we need to make sure it doesn't happen again with other medications that come to market. Dr. Donahue, let me read something to you from my, from my researchers. A report found that overall average life expectancy at birth decreased in 2017 to 78.6 years from 78.7 years in 2016. Why is that? So Armstrong, lifespan is oftentimes not the best measure of overall health. There's lots of reasons for lifespan across the board in a population to be affected. So infant mortality, trauma, uh, violent deaths, addictions, all those things have an impact on the, on the overall lifespan of the population. On the other hand, it's not really arguable that over the last 30 to 50 years, lifespan in the industrialized countries has increased. And you and I and, and Dr. Knight have talked before about some of the unique emerging strategies of expanding health span and lifespan that are int very intriguing and very promising. It is true that here there's been this modest decrease in uh, lifespan. That's a variable that reflects lots of moving parts. It does not, on the other hand, mean to the viewers today that basically healthcare is somehow less effective across the board. Really what we need is a better delivery mechanism, a way of getting all the fabulous things we've been talking about out more broadly to the population with fewer barriers to entry. You know, uh, Dr. Knight, you know, I don't think we can talk about DNA and what's passed on to generations in the gene pool, whether it's alcohol, drug addiction, abuse, obesity, it's passed on. And you know, I, you often talk about COVID babies that were born during the pandemic, conceived, puppies um, that people um, decided to take on, having dogs, raise them to sort of help with their mental condition. And, and, and you, and the other thing they don't talk enough about what has happened during COVID-19, I know people are gonna, not gonna like what I'm gonna say because it's not pretty, is the COVID fat. I've seen so many Americans who are so huge and so colossal since COVID-19. That has less to do with the gene pool than all these things that we talk about with the addictiveness, uh, whether we're talking about what is passed along in the gene pool, we know that eating and exercising is not going to totally 
break the habit or stop the gene pool, but it does impact life expectancy. It does impact your health and your welfare. What is, what is it that people need to, because most people think, think that things are out of their hands, but if you do the little things like the eating, the sleeping, and the exercising, it does have an impact on your overall health. It definitely has an impact on overall health. What we found during the pandemic is individuals who had a predisposition to certain conditions. You talked about obesity, mental health, depression, um, addiction, substance abuse. We saw an increase in all of those areas because this was completely taking people off of their day-to-day. -day. They're now stuck at home. They're working from home. They're not going outside. The gyms are closed, right? We're seeing these things being reversed now. But we had almost a full year where individuals were not active, were having a lot of time on their hands, started to pick up unhealthy habits that maybe they were already predisposed to. So you're right. We're seeing an increase in all of the obesity, mental health. But we also now have an opportunity to start to reverse that. And yes, there are reversible pieces to all of this, even if you're predisposed, whether you're doing it on your own or whether you're seeing a provider like myself, a dietitian, a health coach, someone to help you take charge of your life. This is an opportunity. So as we talk about reopening businesses, we talk about reopening communities, we need to be talking about taking charge of your health, particularly if that was laid to the wayside during the pandemic. You know, people often talk, Dr. Donahue, about being victims. We hear these arguments. But what people don't understand, the most important things they have, they are the master of. Their health, their eating habits, their diet, their exercise. No one controls that but you. You are the master of your ship, of your body. And sometimes we treat it as if somebody else is the master and have control of what of our appearance of our health and then the fact is sometimes doctor they don't even want to go to the hospital for the doctor to tell them what they probably already know and all this has a longer impact when they wait until the last minute to come in and the impact that it has on the hospital and in the care you know armstrong that, that is such an important point and it's such a a, a hugely relevant issue for all of us most of what becomes of us in our lives is not a question of what DNA sequence we have, but rather of the choices that we make day to day. And that's not an indictment, that's an opportunity. That means that if we make different choices, we cultivate a different outcome. If the farmer <clears throat> plants a different seed in April, he gets a different crop in October. So likewise, the, it's not like nature just made these mistakes and holy cow, we got a guanine base pair as opposed to a thymine base pair. Really, it's us. We are, as you say, the captains of this ship. And so this whole new era of understanding the molecular biology of aging and turning that into opportunities for us, decreased calorie intake, daily intermittent fasting, moving incrementally towards maybe a bit of a more plant-based agenda, morning exercise as the sun is breaking the eastern horizon is when you want to have the wind in your forehead. All of these things affect hard endpoints like malignancy, vascular disease, and the risk for dementia. It's never been a more exciting time to be alive than it is this Saturday morning. You know, I, I, wanna, um, I wanted to talk about other health issues because we're always so consumed by COVID-19, we have been for the last year and a half since we've had these regular discussions with our physician experts. But Dr. Knight, 
what concerns you the most now about COVID-19? The concerns now are twofold. So number one is people, as you said, taking charge of their health, catching up on their mammograms, their colonoscopies, their preventive screenings that were not done. Unfortunately, even in my own practice, I've seen individuals who have delayed these screenings because of COVID and are now being diagnosed with preventable uh, conditions. The second is the reality that the pandemic is still here. Depending on where you live, it may feel like it's over. But the reality is it's not over in every community in the United States. We know that vaccination plays a huge role in protecting our community. Whether or not you personally decide, the more people in your community that are getting vaccinated is the safer it's going to be for everyone. We know that there are communities, the vaccination rates are very low and they're not rising. And unfortunately, as long as people keep on getting infected, there will be more variants we will continue to see spread. And that is the second challenge that I'm very, very concerned about. Uh, and Dr. Donahue, what is the state of hospitals with, with its physicians, its healthcare workers, especially its nurses, its orderlies, and are people pursuing medicine as they did in the past? Will there someday we have a shortage because the burdensome, the burdensome cost that's involved? And also, when you go through a period of this pandemic, like what we've gone through, Either people will see it as a calling, or they may say, I don't want to have any parts of this who may have at one time considered medical school as a career. So, you know, Armstrong, that's such an interesting question. My son is a medical student, and so I'm kind of living vicariously again through him. And it turns out that it has never in our nation's history been harder to get into medical school than it is now. So in my medical school class there at Georgetown, when I applied, there were 10,250 applicants for a class size of 205. Last year, that number was well over 15,000. And I want your viewers to get the sense that all of those applicants are pre-screened. They've already gone to college. They've done the 10 obliged pre-medical uh, courses. And so it's actually very hard now, harder even than it was when Dr. Knight and I went to medical school to get into medical school. So there's no attrition of interest. And it's not been my experience that the brutal process that the healthcare workers have been exposed to over the last over the last uh, year or so has caused any attrition, whatever. People are not leaving because the task has gotten more challenging. I'm finding something of the opposite. Our nurses and our uh, uh, staff hung here. We did not have uh, attrition because people were at risk personally for infection. We've talked before here about it is the case, I think, that we could have done a better job in terms of protecting our healthcare workers. Let, let, me, interrupt, but, let me interrupt you a minute because I'm, I'm running yes. out of time because I do want to deal with this last issue before we say goodbye to you. The silent killers, you're hearing so many stories about people dying as a street sleeps heart attacks, just not waking up. Mm -hmm. And there are no signs, no indication they had any kind of issue until someone found them dead. Is there anything else you can share with us that would give people some insights on how you can, the signs are there and you may need to see the doctor or something that you may need to do in your own routine? Armstrong, there are 350,000 people a year in America who have sudden cardiac death. 
those people did not have signs or symptoms of the disease. Tragically, vascular disease, unlike other things, is oftentimes first announced with its most grave expression. We have not been successful in whittling away at that number of 350,000 over about the last 10 years. Having said that, the real thing to focus on is what are your risks for vascular disease? Vascular disease is something that while we can't predict these extreme expressions of it like sudden death and heart attacks, on the other hand, one could make oneself at very low risk for any expression of vascular disease. Paul makes the point in the scripture, he says, one doesn't own, but one stewards the body. So stewardship should be an active, robust sport. Uh, so getting out of your comfort zone, engaging in a non-toxic diet, knowing what your, uh, what your bad cholesterol, your LDL is, it should be at or below 70, vowing to yourself that you will weigh throughout your life what you weighed or should have weighed at 21, remembering that length of life goes down in general as body mass goes up. So those are rules of the road that apply to all of us. If we just started there and said, let's really make stewardship an active, robust, bone-crushing uh, agenda, not some casual thing that we, that we put off to the end of the day. We could make vascular disease, the cause of death of one out of two of us, essentially irrelevant. So this is something that we can control. And again, as you suggest, as much by the choices we make as the DNA that we inherit. Dr. Donahue, Dr. Knight, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this week's episode.